Hello, and welcome to The Advantage Investor, a Raymond James Limited podcast, a podcast that provides perspective for Canadian investors who want to remain knowledgeable, informed, and focused on long-term success. We are recording this on June the 7th, 2022. I'm Chris Cooksey from the Raymond James Corporate Communications and Marketing Department. And today we have two guests, Head of Investment Strategy, Nadim Kassam. Nadim needs no introduction. He's been here lots of times and we're always excited to have him back. And equity research analyst, Brad Sturgis, who's making his debut on the podcast. And today we are going to be discussing real estate, a very uh, timely topic, if you will. Welcome to the Advantage Investor, Nadim and Brad. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to join the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Doing great as always. And thank you again for uh, inviting me on the podcast. All right. Well, we'll jump right in. Lots to discuss. Uh, inflation is running hot. We all know that. Um, seems like everything is going up and continually going up. And, um, you know, the Bank of Canada, I think we call it hawkish, meaning they want to raise rates at that, uh, uh, moving forward. Um, and it sounds like it might be quite aggressively uh, in the months to come. Now, with the Bank of Canada being this aggressive, um, yields have been rising across the curve. Um, and as Nadim gave me in my notes, many long duration and interest rate sensitive securities and assets are underperforming so far this year. I wouldn't even try to pretend I could make that sentence up. So I'll just repeat what my friend Nadim says. Um, and in particular, uh, when it comes to real estate, the Canadian REIT sector uh, has been uh, selling off of approximately 10% year to date. Um, which is obviously an underperformance of the broader TSX. Um, so Brad, uh, let's just start with uh, the REIT sector when it comes to real estate. And maybe you can just give us a high level overview of the recent performance of the sector and your coverage universe. Yeah, uh, thanks for that intro. I would, I would say, you know, obviously real estate gets viewed like other sectors like power and utilities as interest rate uh, sensitive as you talked about. But I, I think what gets lost or, or forgotten is it's a great inflation hedge, uh, particularly in asset classes where you have shorter duration cash flows, where there is better pricing power and you can get, a, get at that um, rent growth fairly quickly. Um, I would say this year has been obviously a tougher year. It's been an underperformer for the REITs. It's pretty broad based across the sector. However, where we're seeing uh, a differentiation in performance is value stocks are outperforming right now, uh, particularly in um, the commercial diversified sector. Some of the small cap REITs that were trading at pretty low multiples are what's performing um, uh, the best this year, and, and we do have a handful of stocks that are uh, still in positive territory from a total return perspective. And I would say what's been hit the hardest is what worked really well in, in, during the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. That's your very higher growth uh, sectors, um, which uh, we're trading at much higher multiples, uh, I would uh, suggest, but it's it's your residential stocks, industrial storage where actually where we see you know from an underlying um, fundamental point of view the best rent growth because of demand supply imbalance because you're seeing inflation not only on the rent side but from a con construction cost perspective and the the cost to bring on new supply continues to escalate yet um, this is where we're seeing uh, generally the most impact and I think it's it's a reflection of maybe taking a little bit of profit taking in, in some of the names that really worked well in the last couple of years, but also a little bit more expensive. And, and certainly um, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the, the interest rate narrative is, is raising questions about what does that mean for underlying valuations for real estate 
across every asset class and um, you know investors taking you know basically sharpening their pencils on to to what uh, where these should trade at going forward and what the, the the near to medium term outlook would look like for for valuation and growth going forward excellent now um, in addition to those higher rates and, and and some of the other things you mentioned um, housing affordability or just in, in not just houses obviously uh, apartments and all that that fall under that um, the affordability of it has been in question in the media uh, we've seen uh, you know the prime minister say stuff and and, and through the budget uh, federal budget in 2022 um, and so people are looking for this way uh, for for more ho- housing availability and if we um, you know use that old Ronald Reagan, quote about how the scariest words in the English language are, we are the government and we're here to help. Um, maybe how does this uh, all play into uh, play into that and how is that going to affect the sector moving forward? Yeah, I would say generally speaking, you know, there's there's a lot of bad news being priced into the sector uh, today that we just talked about in, in sort of the first question. Uh, the regulatory environment for residential um, is, is a big part of it. it it's it's a, a an issue in terms of housing affordability, not just not just in Canada, but in Europe, in in the U.S. Uh, we've seen an, a real acceleration of home prices. We've seen an acceleration in certain markets of of what uh, rental rates are being charged on the multifamily uh, apartment side. And, and certainly, um, when we look at at Canada and the residential market, what's a, a key driver of growth? Uh, or demand is that we have very favorable immigration policies uh, that are, are leading to, to greater population growth and a greater population growth expectation over the next few years. Um, what gets not talked about as much in the media is that we also have a growing uh, presence or group of non-permanent residents or students that come to Canada each year to study and that's uh, you know a fairly large part of the housing um, market as well. That take you know particularly on the rental side. Right. Um, you know, if you look over the last several years uh, from a new supply perspective, um, you know, new supply is not keeping pace with the population growth. And if anything, we've seen a, a you know a change in the mix between single-family uh, housing starts. And multifamily housing starts, particularly urban condos that are, you know, maybe not as well suited for uh, larger families because they tend to be 500 square foot condos downtown near your office, right. not necessarily in a suburban location where you have, you know, the uh, two to three bedrooms or the size that you need to 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 accommodate a larger family. So, um, given the fact that um, housing uh, demand continues to grow, uh, increase through greater population growth. And it really takes a, a lot of time and effort um, to, to bring on new supply. I would say right now, our immigration policy federally does not match our housing policy, which tends to be uh, more a directive of the provincial, the provinces. But also, you know, if you think about developments being approved, that, that tends to be done at the municipal level, not the federal level. Now, you know, the, the Trudeau government um, has recognized that uh, we have a housing shortage uh, across Canada and they've come out and articulated in the last budget in terms of the amount of supply that we need to add over the next decade. However, uh, you know, they have also made it a point to uh, discuss the role of institutions uh, within the market and have, you know, during the, the federal election last fall, they, they did uh, specify or single out the, the Canadian apartment REITs as 
under review from a taxation point of view. Now, when you fast forward to the the spring budget in uh, uh, in the in the last go around earlier this year, it it, it has softened in terms of language around that. Um, you know, not calling out the, the REIT specifically. It's it's talking more about you know reviewing the role of uh, large uh, for-profit corporate landlords is the language they've used. Um, there is a federal review of of what that uh, that role and um, potential um, uh, proposed changes could uh, be enacted. Uh, you know that that review is ongoing and expected to be kind of completed and announced to the public, I guess, by the end of the year. Um, we are of the view that uh, negative changes from, from a taxation point of view, whether it's specific to the REITs or more broadly speaking to, to for-profit landlords, will not so- solve the housing crisis. Uh, and in fact, will, could hinder uh, private investment into the sector going forward, which is really needed to bring on new housing supply. Um, but, you know, the REITs themselves, that they make up for less than 5% of their rental stock. Uh, they're a small uh, proponent of... Uh, even the institutional uh, landlord market, it's more like the Canadian pension funds and life co's that tend to be larger landlords than uh, the REITs themselves. And, and then uh, we also think that if there was a taxation change, you have to remember that, um, you know, it, REITs are designed to be a pass flow vehicle. Um, they're, they're already taxable. Um, what, what the intent of the, the structure is to avoid double taxation, both at the trust level and through your distributions. Um, but it, let's say there was a change in the taxation. Um, because of high depreciation tax yields, because, because of interest cost uh, tax yields, we don't actually think the REITs would be paying that much tax, generally speaking. Um, it, it will differ, it'll be different outcomes for different REITs depending on where their depreciation tax yields would be from a taxable income point of view. A newer REIT that's been more uh, investing in recent years, whether through acquisitions or value-add investments, they would have higher levels of depreciation, therefore likely little or no tax, taxable income. Uh, a more mature REIT that hasn't been as active from an acquisition point of view or not investing as much in their, in their portfolio, are likely to have lower uh, depreciation tax yields and therefore could be a little bit more taxable. But either way, you know, we think this, this risk is more than uh, baked into valuation today. And, and quite frankly, we think the impact could be minimal, less than 5% to FFO. So um, it, it's, it's been a, an overhang in the, in the space. I think another overhang was the Ontario provincial election that has come and gone. We've seen the, the Ford government be reelected with a, a greater majority. So we actually think that's quite a, a positive outcome from a regular a regulatory point of view. And um, we, we think that as demand continues to improve with Im- immigration coming into Canada and foreign students returning into uh, into Canada in the for the fall season, um, we think, you know, pricing power is going to come back much stronger for, for the REITs and, and the last overhang could be this federal review that if, if nothing uh, happens, that certainly could be a very good positive catalyst, uh, I think for the residential REITs. Okay. Now, given all, all of what you just spoke of in the last two, two questions, um, how can investors uh, position across REITs, uh, their portfolios, obviously for our friends in compliance, have to have a nice conversation to make sure things are all right for your particular situation. But in general, um, how, what can investors do here? Yeah, so I mean, there there are uh, a few different ways we're we're looking at playing the the REIT sector here today um, in terms of 
uh, screening. We're looking for low leverage, low payout. Uh, we, we like exposure to the urban centers where there's a growing demand and supply imbalance of for assets. Um, we, we like REITs that have shorter duration cash flows where there's pricing power and you can capture that rent growth uh, today. Um, we would suggest more residential and industrial. That's where the pension funds and there's really a, a wall of capital still in the private market looking to invest. There's a big uh, disconnect now between public and private pricing so that from a valuation perspective looks uh, quite attractive and, and certainly we are probably shying away a little bit from office and retail because it's a little bit more challenging so with that sort of framework I think where we see kind of the best opportunities today is the U.S. residential re, uh, REITs or companies so that's a BSR REIT or a Tricon if you're looking for single-family rental we're seeing double-digit rent growth in the Sun Belt specifically. Um, we, we think there's been a, a large pullback in the stocks here, so you're getting a great valuation. And, um, you know, there's less regulatory risk than what we were just talking about in Canada. I think um, on the industrial side, we like a small cap REIT that's got a lot of positive cows named Neck REIT. Um, that bit extra income, but um, transitive multiple and uh, as robust growth on the large side, that's kind of global play with positive catalyst coming up and trading at a pretty low multiple relative to other large cap industrial REITs. And then I would say uh, on the storage side, um, Storage Vault has probably been the best compounder in terms of real estate stocks in the last five to seven years. Uh, still well positioned from a demand and supply perspective for storage. It's really the only way to play uh, Canadian storage uh, today. And um, we, we are expecting still 10 to 15% organic growth, 25 to 30% AFO per share growth. That's one of the best still in the sector today for growth. And yet you can buy it much closer to NEV than historically uh, has been available. So on these dips with Storage Vault, you tend to have uh, some good buying opportunities because it tends to be a very good uh, growth story. And and we, we continue continue. Uh, to see that today, but in all three sectors, the short duration cash flows, better pricing power, better rent growth, and, and much better valuation. So we think the setup is well for for those three asset classes. Great. Now, Nadim, in addition to these public uh, REITs, uh, you know, public in terms of uh, being on the stock market, um, residential real estate rates are going up. Um, we've sort of been waiting for 20 years for rates to go up on these and see what happens in residential uh, real estate. So maybe you can just give us uh, your thoughts and outlooks on that. Yeah. And, and, and I think, uh, again, I think it comes back down to, you know, the interest rate environment and, and some of the catalysts behind, you know, the moves uh, by central banks, not only in Canada, but globally as it, as it relates to the directional or hawkish tilt towards their policy. So to put it in context, in Canada, we're averaging about 6% inflation year-over-year growth. That's almost two to three times above the central bank's targets. So whether or not um, the central banks or policymakers or, or um, you know, government um, like it or not, you know, they have to maintain uh, price stability. And, and I'll give you an example. If, we're, if every single day we're going to the pump um, or we're, you know, grocery shopping and we continue to see, you know, prices of everyday consumables moving up, you know, that will have an impact on consumption levels and behaviors. And, and that's a very dangerous thing to, to see um, and has a spillover effect uh, to the broader economy, right? So I think what's different 
um, during this current tightening cycle um, versus, let's say, during the last cycle, so pre-2019, pre-COVID, is that inflation is hovering at a level that we haven't seen in, in almost 40 years, right? So I think the focus right now for the central banks, you know, namely in Canada, but also even south of the border and globally, um, is to, to really get inflation under control. Um, and if you look at kind of the commentary from, you know, our central bank just last week, they were more or less unfazed by the recent collapse in, in sales activity um, in April, which we saw a 14% drop. And, you know, the recent uh, data points are pointing to a about a 12% month over month change. And we've seen uh, the sales to new listing ratio for Canada's four largest cities imply house price inflation essentially flat for the year versus up 18% as of the end of April, right? So definitely interest rates are are having or expected to have uh, an impact on, on housing fundamentals um, in Canada, and I would say, like, I recently went to uh, the bank and just for, you know, just ahead of this call, I wanted to just inquire about, you know, if I had to refinance uh, my mortgage, you know, what would the stress test, what would the rate that I would, uh, you know, what would I be qualified for? So um, my mortgage is due in, in a few months. Uh, it was previously at 2.34 or 2.24 the stress test would be right now at about four and a half percent. So you can think about the impact that would have, um, especially if inflation, which has been stubbornly high and sticky, if it doesn't come down as quick as expected. And based on all the commentary that we've been seeing, even indications from the central bank, it's that it may not go down to the two to three percent target, right? Um, which which they've historically uh, focused on in terms of the inflation normalized or neutral inflation rate. Um, so I, I think there's there's definite um, there's definite risks on the horizon, and um, I, I think again the priority for Bank of Canada is to keep inflation under control and and maintain price stability, and so that's going to take a lot of the froth. Um, we're already seeing it out of the real estate market. And similarly, what that's going to actually do, just given how big, you know, within the CPI component housing is, it should, in, you know, over time have an impact on the CPI or inflation level too, right? So this is on purpose uh, in terms of what they're trying to do. They're trying to slow the economy, which again, um, you know, I don't think I even mentioned it on this call, but it's running at about 4% which is twice the pace that Canada has grown historically. So it's running very hot and likely, you know, causing some overheating signs uh, everywhere. Uh, we saw it in the markets last year, which have cooled more recently. But I think what we're, what we're expecting is that if, if inflation stays elevated, we, we assume the hawkish tilt that we've, we've, we've seen from the Bank of Canada will continue um, and will likely lead to further downside pressure for housing. Um, again, there's other fundamentals at bay um, in terms of, again, uh, Brad mentioned it in terms of, you know, just the immigration policies and just the, you know, the lack of real supply, right? So how low things will go uh, irrespective of where, you know, um, prices or interest rates move, um, I, I think is, is something that, um, you know, time will really tell, but we definitely see a little bit more pain on the horizon. All right. Uh, you mentioned markets a second ago, and I'd be remiss if I didn't get your quick thoughts here, Nadim, on uh, halfway mark. Uh, obviously, we're in June now, so year halfway over. Uh, 
let's hear a quick outlook for the economy and markets uh, for the rest of the year. Yeah, so I think at the onset of this year, just given you know the earth-shattering performance that we saw, not only from you know the economy, but also you know global economy, Canadian U.S. economies, which were running well above five six percent GDP growth year over year, again two to three percent, uh, two to three times uh, the, the pace of growth that we've seen uh, historically speaking, right? So very very hot um, in in twenty twenty one, and and what policymakers essentially are, are trying to do, and this is on purpose, is to cool the economy back towards, you know, more reasonable uh, long-term trend growth, uh, which is, again, uh, more sustainable for the economy where we don't see, you know, really huge surges in inflation. Uh, we see more, you know, stabilized, uh, you know, supply chains, um, employment levels, all that kind of stuff. So I think what we're seeing in, in the market um, so far this year is is more a reflection of, you know, the tightening and the removal of stimulus or, you know, the very extreme measures that were used to combat, you know, the uncertainties associated with COVID-19 and the, and the global lockdowns and restrictions that that came about. However, adding to that is, you know, the Russian-Ukraine situation, uh, which again, at the onset of the year, no one thought anything was was going to materialize, at least not in the way it has, especially with the sanctions and the self-sanctioning that we've seen. So that's also put a, a, a nice bit into inflation. Um, and then also, you know, while many countries in Asia, um, where most companies essentially route uh, or have some exposure in terms of their supply chain, uh, many of these countries abandoned their zero COVID policy, whereas whereas China has been struggling with that mandate, right? And so heading into lockdown and very extreme lockdowns, which has been, um, you know, pretty severe for that economy, which is which I would say close to contracting uh, in the last quarter. So I think we've we've kind of moved past that um, now. I think the economies or Chinese economies reopening. Um, there's obviously um, you know risks on the horizon, but. Um, I, I think it's just going to be more of what we've seen in terms of the markets uh, over the next six months. Uh, policy in terms of how far Fed, Bank of Canada and central banks globally kind of tighten. It really depends on inflation. Um, you know, earnings have been fairly strong, uh, both Canada and the U.S., um, households are, are, are in decent shape, especially when we compare um, relatively to other regions around the world. Um, and if I if I take a step back and look at the stock market as a whole, uh, valuations have come in quite aggressively and and look quite quite attractive both in Canada and the U.S. Um, and specifically within the small mid cap space in the U.S. where we haven't seen valuations this low in the last 20 years, right? So there's definitely opportunities that we're seeing on both sides of the border. Our recommendation has been that uh, for investors that really want to capitalize on, you know, the Canadian consumer, the strength in the Canadian economy as well, likewise in the U.S., the strong economic growth en engine that is uh, the U.S. consumer, um, it's to focus on companies that, you know, generate revenues and have supply chains that are more domestically oriented than, you know, globally situated, because what that does is it, it kind of insulates them from, you know, uh, the pressures that we're seeing across, across supply chains uh, across Asia, slowdown in other regions globally, those that are also regions that are exposed to the Russia-Ukraine situation. So again, focus more on domestic Canada, domestic America has been our recommendation and that's been, um, has been the right call. In terms of sectors, you know, it's, it's fairly bifurcated, but again, 
what we view is is this market as being in a, in a mid-cycle posture. And so it's going to be very stock specific. Um, all sectors or all stocks within a particular sector are, um, are not expected to perform the same way, um, you know, during this environment. So it's going to require a lot more due diligence. Um, and, and just in the face of higher yields, uh, we've seen more value-oriented businesses with durable earnings, you know, essentially perform better than others. So if you think about, um, you know, uh, energy businesses that are, you know, better positioned in, in, in the face of inflation that we're seeing in this in this environment, low inventories within the crude, gas, et cetera, uh, space performing well, leisure stocks doing fairly well as well, refiners, and so on and so forth. So again, it's, it's a very stock-specific environment, and, and I would urge investors to be really mindful of valuation, look for really good franchises, um, and seek out value opportunities that, again, uh, look compelling here and, and are more domestically oriented versus, you know, more global. As always, quality is the key. Uh, let's leave it there. I want to thank Brad and Dean. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with the, and expertise with the Advantage Investors listeners today. Ken, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. The Advantage Investor is now on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and rate the podcast. Please contact your advisor with any questions you have. On behalf of Raymond James and the Advantage Investor Podcast, thank you for taking the time to listen today. Until next time, stay well. podcast is for informational purposes only. Statistics and factual data and other information are from sources Raymond James Limited believes to be reliable, but their accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Information is furnished on the basis and understanding that Raymond James Limited is to be under no liability whatsoever in respect thereof. It is provided as a general source of information and should not be construed as an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any product and should not be considered tax advice. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax related matters. Securities related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member of Canadian Investor Protection Fund.